Hello there, and welcome to the Infectious Info Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Infectious Disease Working Group from the University of Toronto. The Infectious Disease Working Group is a collaboration of public health graduate students who aim to improve public awareness on infectious diseases, including COVID-19. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at infectious underscore info. This podcast is funded by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Award, which supports student-led projects that contribute to building healthy, resilient, and equitable communities as part of our post-COVID recovery. My name is Stephen, and I'm a first-year MPH epidemiology student at the Dalalana School of Public Health, and I will be one of the co-hosts today. My name is Janine Zhu, and I am your co-host today as well. Um, I am also a first-year MPH epidemiology student at Dalalana. And our guest today is Dr. Shalin Wei from the University of Toronto. Dr. Wei is a physician and public health professional with a wide array of research interests, ranging from health services delivery to antimicrobial resistance. And he is also the founder and director of the Global Implementation Science Lab. He is also a professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health and Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at um, Toronto. Um, on behalf of the Infectious Disease Working Group, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Wei. Thank you. Your, your background is very, uh, very extensive. Would you be able to maybe uh, talk about some of the main topics of focus you've had throughout your career and a bit more on your background? Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, I think that we have shared a similar background because I used to be a student uh, in the, not in the DLSPH because it was not funded at that time. I was a student of IHPME, the Institute of Health Policy Management Evaluation. And after graduation, I went to teach in University of UK. And then I then taught in Chinese University of Hong Kong and then came back recently. So right now I'm also the chair in the global health policy. Uh, so we are looking at a range of different uh, diseases and which is closely related with, uh, uh, for example, primary care, with hospital care and integration. So I'm looking at the disease of tuberculosis. Uh, and also the overuse of antibiotics in the primary care setting, uh, plus that uh, uh, the uh, control of COVID recently. I'm also a member of the uh, scientific advisory table to the province uh, on the modeling and also on the study about uh, the protection effect of vaccination and the reinfection, uh, which was kind of, you know, most of people are getting COVID in this province. So we were looking a way out. So those are kind of a, uh, a kind of small background and uh, the spectrum of my study topics. Um, so we kind of want to hone in on the antimicrobial uh, resistance and, and that experience that you have there. So would you be able to explain to our um, audience exactly uh, short what is antimicrobial resistance and I guess some of the reasons that um, this had first come about and why it's become such a major problem um, recently and still today? It's uh, resistance, for example, like we about a hundred years ago, uh, human beings began to discover the antibiotics, which uh, were 
a really great uh, improvement in the medical sciences because we can treat the diseases. For example, like sepsis, like tuberculosis, they never could treat again before. Um, before that time, most people uh, kind of died of tuberculosis. It counted for one six people in England. Um, but the bacteria, they will develop as well. So they will develop resistance to the antibiotics uh, we are using. And if we are not using it properly, for example, we use uh, antibiotics for those who do not need to use antibiotics. When you use kind of less dose, we use it less of the full cost. For example, it should be used for three days. We just use for one day. That will be easier for bacteria to survive and then develop the resistance. So that is called antibiotic resistance. And if you look at other things, for example, like uh, uh, malaria, which is a parasite. If you look at uh, virus HIV treatment, if you look at uh, uh, the fungi disease. So in a total, this can resistance be called antimicrobial resistance. Um, so given your background as a um, both a physician and a public health specialist, um, how does antimicrobial resistance impact both um, individual patient level healthcare as well as more on a global um, public health kind of scale? I think one thing for individual care, we know that uh, the resistance, bacterial resistance, uh, develop far more quickly than the pace we develop antibiotics. So which means that uh, uh, every year there had been tens of thousands of people died from the antimicrobial resistance because they cannot be treated. The second thing is that to detect this resistance, uh, for example, in tuberculosis, the traditional way of providing the WHO dose treatment uh, uh, was not regarding the resistance. So we gave the, the uh, antibiotics which the patients already re resist and then that will uh, actually will not, not cure the patient, but uh, maybe develop more resistance. Uh, another point is that uh, we also need to take the one health approach, which means that we need to look at the antibiotic use for animals uh, because there's a half of the antibiotics we uh, manufactured uh, were used for animals. So sometimes there was used just for no reasons. For example, uh, giving antibiotics routinely to chickens to prevent infection, but that antibiotics are going to be washed off. Uh, by the farms and into the rivers, and uh, eventually that will go into our bodies, and that will develop resistance easily. So there are different sources we have to look at. Um, yeah, thank you for that. I think the point that you bring up about agriculture um, use is very important, and it's something that um, I think we in public health, we don't think about as much, but is definitely very important to still consider in terms of antimicrobial resistance. Um, and so my next question is, if we know that um, antibiotic overuse is such an important um, point of resistance, then why is overuse so prevalent still around the world? and also in Canada today? Uh, 
One thing that uh, we are very cautious as physicians, uh, because we do not want to people get into the state of sepsis or get into the state of pneumonia. And then we provide antibiotics for the symptoms, which does not need to. For example, about cough, about uh, you know influenza-like units. And right now, lots of COVID cases here. COVID is a virus. It's not going to be killed by the antibiotics. But you can see that antibiotics has been widely used for COVID patients. There has been a recent review about antibiotic overuse during the COVID pandemic. And traditionally, uh, let's say in Canada, it's about 30 to 40% of people who have, uh, we call the upper respiratory tract infections, which is sore throat, which is cough and uh, headache and fever, but uh, haven't gone into the, you know, the upper part of your lung, like uh, even not bronchitis, not to, you know, pneumonia, you know, infection into the lens. At this stage, antibiotics should not be used at all, but they're still about, uh, say, 30%. Normally, it's around 20 to 40% of antibiotics were given. Uh, if you look at the uh, data in other parts of the world, it's almost 80 to 90%. For example, recently, we're uh, completing a trial, trial, clinical trial in uh, northern Guangdong province in China. That was the baseline was about 90% uh, antibiotic use for these conditions. And a similar story in Egypt, in Cambodia, uh, in Pakistan, so the different countries I have worked to. So the reasons are different. So one is that uh, the doctors do not have enough knowledge. So they think giving antibiotics are going to reduce the likelihood of getting pneumonia in the long run, but it does not prove. The second thing is to be more cautious. They do not want to get any problem with the patients because the patients think, okay, if you, I have antibiotics, I'm going to have a quick cure. Uh, the third thing is about uh, management, about stewardship program. So we try to set up a stewardship program in the primary care setting that doctors could review their prescriptions and know what has been done good, what was, you know, what's wrong, should be improved. And then the other thing is about the markets. Antibiotics are quite widely available in many parts of the world. Uh, you do not need a prescription to get an antibiotic in, for example, in Cambodia. And you can even buy the drugs over the market. So those are the colorful drugs. You do not even know what is inside. It's a plastic bag. It has red capsule, green capsule, and a white pill. You do not know what it is, but that is for the, the drug for flu, the drug for cough, et cetera. But because this kind of overuse and antibiotics is very easy to develop resistance. For example, penicillin, which is still recommended by WHO as the first line drug for pneumonia, it has not been used in many countries. They have to use the second, the third generation. You know, now WHO has a category of access. Uh, uh, reserve and uh, uh, aware and reserve. 
so we need to really use antibiotics in a caution and in a in a letter that is uh, uh, to prevent the best antibiotics we just uh, developed recently for the serious disease. You mentioned um, Cambodia as, as an example of a country where you wouldn't need a, a prescription to get antibiotics. Um, so I was wondering these different factors um, such, such as that, does that play a factor in if antimicrobial resistance is only a problem for high income countries or um, if it also affects the low and middle income countries and what unique problems that uh, these uh, lower and middle income countries may face compared to the high income countries? I think that different countries have different problems and uh, they, they exist uh, in most of all the countries. For example, in South Korea, we call it polypharmacy, which means that uh, a person, you could see many different doctors. You get uh, antibiotics from Dr. A, you get antibiotics from Dr. B, and put into your, uh, your, your jaws. When you get uh, sick, you just uh, bring them out and uh, take the antibiotics. Uh, well, in the, in countries like Cambodia, you just uh, do not need any prescription to get antibiotics. So that is a bigger challenge. And, uh, uh, and also, you do not uh, have any regulation over the physician behavior. So that, that is a bigger challenge as well. I would say it's prevalent in every country, but the problem is more serious in the low and middle income countries. Because of um, partly like less regulation, yeah, um, very weak component. regulation. Yeah, very weak regulation, and also the less knowledge of the physicians. I think another part is about uh, there are always kind of large amount of the private physicians. So all private practitioners, for example, in India, the majority of the private practitioners are not qualified. So they're quacks. They can sell the drugs or just over the counter for anything. Then the regulation is almost nothing to them. So in, in those countries, the private, the private uh, practitioners are, are kind of not really helping the situation. They're, they're more there for themselves. And mm, they're also kind of quite qualified private practitioners, but they account for a small uh, proportion of them. I actually have a follow-up question about this, and I'm just wondering, like, if you see these variations in antibiotic resistance and use around the world, then what kind of consequences do you see on these different populations? They could be, for example, like... uh, uh, you can hear lots of different stories. People get uh, um, very caught, you know, uh, serious disease because of the bacteria or the fungus disease. They get infected in Egypt, in Cambodia, in the developing countries. And then as a result, uh, maybe a leg has to be cut off, etc. cetera. Uh, the other uh, important consequences are more serious is at population level because people are exposed to um, these antibiotics and then the, for some reasons these would you know if you, even for people get disease uh, you would not be able to cure the disease with antibiotics so that will means much more expensive antibiotics at a 
population level. So that's a huge cost to these countries without uh, sufficient financing. Keeping our uh, discussion on the global level, I want to talk about tuberculosis a little bit. Um, how has um, micro- antimicrobial resistance, which I know is a big problem and has been a big problem for the treatment of tuberculosis, how has that complicated um, how you can treat tuberculosis maybe in, in different um, income level co- uh, countries? Uh, for example, tuberculosis treatment uh, was invented in uh, the 50s when the new antibiotics called streptomycin was identified at that time. And it was the first RCT in the world to determine the effectiveness of drug. And then all the drugs followed the RCT approach. Uh, right now, treatment of the tuberculosis normally takes about six months. It's called WHO DOS program uh, for four drugs, arsenizid, rifamicin, isobutyl, and, uh, and sometimes streptomycin, and sometimes I think uh, rifamicin. And then uh, use these drugs, the, the full drug, the cost of the drug for six months only cost us about 20 bucks. Well, if the patient is uh, resistant to arsenizid and the rifampicin, which are the two main drugs used in the DOS program, then we call these patients are multiple drug resistant TB, so the MDR TB. And the MDR TB, the treatment uh, now, it can be short, as short as nine months. And previously, it's longer, it's much longer, it's about 18 to 24 months. Uh, use different uh, antibiotics. And at that time, for, for example, calamicin, et cetera, you have to inject to the patient on a daily basis. It's not oral. Uh, right now, there are new drugs, uh, uh, fully oral, but it's quite expensive. So use the traditional drugs, it costs about $1,500 uh, per treatment. And use new drugs, it can cost, cost about 5000 per treatment. So you can see the difference. And also the likelihood of treatment success will be much lower for the multiple resistance of TB um, because it's more complicated and uh, there are more side effects. People get uh, a, you know, nausea and even some, some people get mental illness during the treatment. So that's why we should prevent people going into the MDR from the beginning. What um, what percentage of of patients become get to the MDR uh, MDR stage? Uh, it varies. In Canada, we do not have many. I think that the rate is quite low. It's lower than one percent. Uh, but if you look at different countries, for example, in uh, in China, that is about four uh, percent. Uh, oh. Uh, TB patients are MDR. Uh, if you look at retreated patients, mean that the patient had been previously treated for TB, uh, but they, they, they were not cured. And this among these patients is about 20% of these patients had MDR. But if you look at countries in Russia, in you know countries like the previous, uh, previous Soviet bloc, Russia, Ukraine, Ukraine uh, Kazakhstan, etc. So the MDR rates uh, are much higher. It's about eight percent, twelve percent with all the patients. If you look at among the new, 
retreated patients, it can be as high as 40%. So that is very high. And also I work in Tibet. So the rate of the MDR-TB in Tibet is very high. So that is a problem because MDR-TB can transmit to a naive patient, which a patient does not have TB before directly as MDR-TB. So they are not going to develop as TB and MDR-TB, so they directly were transmitted as MDR-TB. So we have done the studies in Shanghai using the genotyping uh, and the spatial uh, analysis. We found that most of MDR-TB transmitted locally within themselves. So they, they were not infected with TB first developed a long time into MDR. So that caused a huge problem. What um, what can be, I guess, done or how do physicians and, and public health um, specialists, what can they do to reduce um, the progression of um, multidrug resistant TB? How, how can we kind of bring that rate down? Uh, the first thing I think is similar to the we call the antimicrobial resistance stewardship program. It's similar to this program to first uh, diagnose patients and treat them right uh, from the beginning. For example, we need to diagnose patients with MDR first. We should have the gene expert test of reforming resistant TB and then put them on to the MDR treatment. And we need to uh, we need to make the diagnostic uh, machines available. For example, in Tibet, such a big place, uh, there are I think there are only two diagnostic centers for MDR. So patients have to travel uh, several hundred miles to the uh, to the capital Lhasa to get diagnosed. You know, to travel in this situation is not, you know, very high latitude. The road condition were not good. So that's why lots of people had MDR. And secondly, we need to uh, treat patients uh, continuously for ensure patients to take their drugs on the right time, on a daily basis. basis we call it uh, adherence. Uh, recently, we are completing a trial using the electronic medical uh medical boxes as monitors so they could uh, uh, they have a chip on the ball on the cap of the box when you open the box it will transmit a signal to the server and then that will be downloaded by the cell phone so the patient and the doctor so the doctor are treated patient they call the patient uh, supporter would know the patient has taken the drugs. So if not, the patient supporter will call the patient using cell phone, using that it was an app program. And they can also send the health promotion message through the app and can have dialogue with the patient, see if you have any side effects, et cetera. So we, we try to bring the new technology and human interaction factor together. So that was... Uh, uh, randomized control trial, which we just finished, and we are trying to analyze the data and put it into the publication. It will be the first one in the world to show a positive effect on the treatment outcomes because previously there had been trials done in Uganda, in India, uh, to look at the same same thing, but uh, they are using a much older version of the. Uh, supporter, so where you the new version can link with cell phones, can get the simultaneous message, uh, which was very helpful. 
Yeah, thanks for that. I think it's very interesting to learn about these different tools that are now being implemented to help um, stop the spread of um, MDRTB. Um, I think you mentioned quite a couple of times before about um, antibiotic stewardship programs. So I'm kind of curious about this. And so what are these programs and what role do they currently play in um, helping to um, combat antimicrobial resistance? Uh, it can play in a different ways. For example, you could uh, incorporate into the electronic medical uh, system that when the doctors prescribe antibiotics, there would be questions to answer, uh, to be answered. For example, uh, what was the infection? Should it justify providing antibiotics? Uh, in Canada, there's a, a program called uh, uh, WISE. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's uh, try to use, uh, you know, try to use less of antibiotics, less of, the, for example, blood infusion, et cetera. In the academic world, we call it de-implementation, trying to reduce the harmful medical practices. So that would be very useful. The other part will be the doctors would have a chance to review their own prescriptions on a regular basis. They could review and compare their, uh, for example, their prescription level compared with the average in the hospital or average in the province. And then they will say, okay, maybe I prescribed much more antibiotics than others, what was the reason, et cetera. There could be other things related with, for example, uh, remuneration of the physicians, which I think is very hard to be implemented in the Canadian setting because the payment system is is mainly fee for service and uh, uh, and you know, being many factors which can really related with performance. But it has been used in other places. For example, in another trial we uh, published in the Lancet is to say that there, if you uh, try to tweak the award system on this, it will have a big impact, but only being a little bit of financial loss to the face physicians because physicians do not want to lose face. They do not want to say, I'm a bad, bad practitioner uh, before the others. So there could be different ways, but you definitely you have to adopt it to be fit into your own setting. So then to be more specific within the Canadian context, are there any Canadian specific strategies that are currently in place or are in development to help treat antimicrobial resistance? There had been many, many people, for example, people in Montreal, in Toronto, they're trying to identify the different strategies. Uh, some developed a very um, uh, very small change called a nudge theory. Nudge is mean to, to kind of nudge some, somebody. So uh, there would be some educational points, et cetera. Uh, some others have developed strategy about uh, powering the patients to give the patient a say to discuss if you want to use antibiotics or not. It has been uh, demonstrated quite uh, uh, positive in Montreal, but none of them have been widely used in the system. So that is a challenge. And uh, 
there has been, I think, many initiatives, but uh, there had not been a kind of system can adopt it widely in the system. So after speaking about, I guess, kind of these um, little systems that have been trialed and and implemented, um, I just want to ask you what what do you hope to see, uh, given your many years of experience, what do you hope to see and what do you think would make a change globally um, or even on a smaller scale to to help um, reduce the proliferation of antimicrobial agents and and make a, a more healthier future? I think in the Canadian set, uh, setting, uh, we first need to adapt to the antibiotic resistance or the, for example, prescription or antibiotics as a indicator to evaluate the quality of the hospital or the quality of the primary care practice. So that will give it a much more important state, uh, stage to implement this. The secondly, we need to really kind of get the education at the patient level. So people will know that antibiotics should not be used so widely. For example, when you had had lots of dental care, people, the, the dentist will give you antibiotics. So I often said, no, I do not need it because there, there were no infection. So you should not be given antibiotics. So that may be very helpful. Another thing I think Canada is, a, a, let's say we have a big agriculture sector. So we need to work closely with uh, veterans and with, uh, with, uh, with the kind of animal health sector to reduce the, the antibiotic overuse for animals. So we've, um, a lot of the things I read and, and after talking to you, we talk a lot about um, reducing the antibiotic use making physicians and hospital systems more transparent about their antibiotic use so we can kind of see see where it's coming from. But I guess maybe to flip it on the other side of the argument, I was wondering, um, instead of reducing, is the onus um, of antimicrobial resistance, do you think it's reasonable to say that it's also um, biotech and pharma who, who fail to um, manufacture new um, antimicrobial um, resist or new drugs that that may help um, treat antimicrobial resistant infections. Is that reasonable to say? Um, I don't think that is reasonable to blame the big pharmaceuticals not developing enough. Uh, I think that's one thing. All the development of new drugs are, you know, have to be decided by the market. If the market is not uh, a lot. And also, for example, in the market is mostly in the developing countries. The big farmers would not be, be, be willing to invest so much money to develop new antibiotics. <clears throat> and also, it's going to be harder and harder to identify the new uh, antibiotics because, you know, because we have identified so many. You have to think about a new area, et cetera. So there had been new investment strategies. For example, the NHS in England, they invest, uh, invest on the uh, antibiotics in a lump sum. Uh, for example, there would be not be a lot used for new antibiotics because we want to reserve it. We do not want to use it widely. So that means the, the usage will be not, uh, the volume will, will not be a lot. And then the companies would not make uh, 
uh, enough money to make balance. <laughs> so the new investment model is that there would be a lump sum investment. For example, if there is a new uh, new company bring a new antibiotics, there would be say one million pounds invested it for over five years, regardless of the volume have been ordered from the pharmaceutical company. So that's a way you could uh, uh, reduce the overuse antibiotics because otherwise the farmers will try to urge the doctors to use it more, use it more because uh, the more bottles or more boxes have been consumed, the much more money as a company I'm going to get. So we need to think about the new strategies. For example, the government could uh, team up with NGOs, with companies to investment a mutual fund for antibiotic development. So the companies would be able to try, fail, and succeed because the, the way would be see if you have 100 candidates, it will be only like eight be able to be brought into the market. So there are lots of failures in the process. So we need to think about new financing models. Is there anything, any last words that you wanted to add or anything that you feel like is important for our audience to know about this topic? Uh, if most of the audience are like, uh, you know, uh, young people, like the students, etc., I think there's lots of things they can do in terms of uh, develop different awareness program uh, for antibiotics. And first, you could watch for your own health, your family's health. And you could watch for the environment in terms of overuse antibiotics for the animals. Um, and uh, that would be also a way to prevent the next pandemic. So it uh, had been predicted by many it's going to be the next pandemic on the uh, antibiotics, either virus, fungus, or the bacteria. So I think that will be a very useful approach. Thank you very much. Thank you. On behalf of Janine and I and the Infectious Disease Working Group, um, we thank you for your time um, coming here to talk to us and, and giving out um, this information for our audience. Um, I think that there's a lot that we can take away from this talk that many people will appreciate. So we thank you, Dr. Wei, for, for coming on and uh, we wish you the, the best in your, um, in your work. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.